The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. If you've been here for uh, any length of time, you know that our custom at Baltimore Bible Church is just to take a book of the Bible and work through it verse by verse. Uh, we jump in on the train at chapter 1, verse 1, and then we don't get off of that train until we're at the last stop in the final verse of the final chapter. And uh, that's been our practice for all the years of our ministry and will continue to be the practice of our church as long as I'm here. And uh, the book of Romans is the next train that we'll be getting on. And I trust that we'll be all aboard for that entire ride together. And uh, the train, just to let you know, won't leave the station until the beginning of the new year. I'm just letting you know. Just letting you know. <laughs> but the train will be at the station. So I just wanted to let you know about that. The train's going to leave at the beginning of the new year. And uh, when will we get off the train? Nobody knows, but, uh, but that's the thrill of the ride, and I'm uh, grateful that you're all uh, going to be here for that, and uh, we'll continue that practice. But um, occasionally, uh, as a church, uh, we'll also work through individual messages, uh, whether that's a message on the church or on theology or some area of ministry, or we may address a question uh, that our members have, and on very rare occasions, we'll talk about world events as well. That's a rare occasion because uh, the world events don't set the preaching schedule for the church. Uh, we don't chase uh, news headlines for what the church should be talking about. But there are those events that are so significant that they require some kind of response from the church. And what happened in Israel is one of those events. Uh, so today what I want to talk about is what in the world is going on in Israel and how should we respond uh, we want to make sure that we're thinking biblically uh, through these things together, and uh, this is really my first opportunity to address it uh, since the news surprised all of us. And uh, by now, we've all seen what's happened on Saturday, October 7th. Uh, there was a coordinated terrorist attack on Israel by Hamas, which is the Islamic political and military organization that governs the Gaza Strip. The Hamas terrorist group uh, broke through the border wall that protected Israel, uh, they cut through the gates, they bulldozed walls, uh, they parachuted armed terrorists across the border into Israel and essentially went on a, a looting and a killing spree in mostly residential areas where they, they butchered civilians that were living there. Uh, they attacked some military installations, but their primary targets were civilians. And by now you've seen the gruesome videos that they took of themselves to celebrate their attack. And you would think that they would want to hide these acts of terror, but they recorded and broadcasted these acts of brutality over the internet. They were proud of their work. Entire households were killed, children in front of parents, parents in front of children, women were raped, infants, infants were beheaded, bodies were mutilated, desecrated, and paraded throughout the streets. Videos were absolutely sickening to watch. At some point, you just had to, to bury your face in your hands and turn away because of what you were saying. And make no mistake about it, this is terrorism at its worst. October 7th, 2023 marks the greatest loss of Jewish life in a single day since the Holocaust. 1,300 Israelis were butchered, over 3,000 were injured, and the Israeli military confirmed that there were 203 hostages taken by Hamas, including 30 children and youth and as many as 20 elderly people, and among the elderly, there was a wheelchair-bound Holocaust survivor. It's been called Israel's 9-11 or Israel's Pearl Harbor. And the question is, what are we to make of all of this? How does this happen? How are we to understand this? And we're not talking about how do we understand this uh, politically or how do we understand this from a breakdown in security. A breakdown in security might explain how they got in, but it doesn't explain why they went in. A breakdown in security doesn't explain a breakdown in humanity. 
How are we to make sense of human beings treating other human beings as less than human beings? And you could tell that the political leaders and media personalities were looking for some kind of language to describe what they were saying. It was described as animalistic. It was described as subhuman. But here's the harsh reality that's incredibly hard for us to swallow. What we saw was very human. What we saw was very human. And we don't know just how human what we saw was. And that's the first point in my introduction to answer this question, what in the world is going on in Israel? Number one, what is going on in Israel is very human. One theologian put it like this, man in his raw, natural state as he comes from the womb is morally and spiritually corrupt in disposition and character. Every part of his being, his mind, his will, his emotions, his affections, his conscience, and his body has been affected by sin. And that's what we mean by the doctrine of total depravity. Every part of humanity is impacted by the fall. The description goes on to say this, his understanding, speaking about man, his understanding is darkened, his mind is at enmity with God, his will to act is enslaved to his darkened understanding and rebellious mind, his heart is corrupt, his emotions are perverted, his affections naturally gravitate to that which is evil and ungodly, his conscience is untrustworthy, and his body is subject to mortality. And the question is not why do tragedies like this happen The real question is, why don't they happen more often? That's the question. Why aren't there multiple 9-11s? Why aren't there multiple October 7ths? This is only, it's only the grace of God that's prevented humanity from eating each other alive before now. That's just the grace of God. Flip over to Romans chapter 3. I know we're all familiar with it, but the, the portrait of humanity in Romans chapter 3 is not a flattering picture. And if you ask the divine photographer, you know, hey, can you make sure that you get our good side? There, were not, there would not be a good side to take. There's not a good side to take of humanity. In Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 10, it says, as it is written, there is how many righteous? None. None righteous. Are you sure about that? Not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And listen to this. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And didn't we see that in the videos that we watched? Feet that were swift, I mean eager to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. And regardless of what they may claim, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 51 in verse 5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That's all humanity. That's everybody born of a woman. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 3 says, Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. But then you might say, well, what about my my unbelieving neighbor who's so nice to me, who treats me well? What about the the soldier that, that gives his life for my freedom? Or what about my parents who love me who weren't believers? All of that is evidence of what theologians call the common grace of God. Do you know what kind of people give good gifts, according to Jesus? Evil people. (laughs) Luke chapter 11 and verse 13, Jesus says, You then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Just because somebody does something that's good doesn't mean that they are good. Because the Bible has already said that there's none good. So you being evil can still give good gifts. So total depravity doesn't mean that Every human being is as wicked as they can possibly be, but it does mean that every part of unbelieving humanity has been corrupted by the fall. And it's only by God's grace that there are not multiple October 7ths. It's by God's grace. But what's going on in Israel is very human. And all you need to do is pull out the world history book off your shelf or Encyclopedia Britannica to remind yourself of the atrocities that have happened throughout world history. 
Do you think that human beings treating other human beings as less than human beings is something new to humanity? Are you kidding me? There have been holocausts and genocides and widespread massacres in Myanmar, China, Iraq, Sudan, the Congo, Zaire, Rwanda, Bosnia, Somalia, Cambodia, Uganda, Burundi, Bangladesh, Guatemala, Russia, Germany, Bosnia, Namibia, Libya, Turkey, Argentina, New Zealand, Australia, Haiti, France, and the United States of America. And that's just a sampling of what's been documented in the past couple of hundred years. And if you add to that the enslaving of humanity where human beings are treating other human beings as less than human beings, you add that to the mix, or the sanitized killings that happen in abortion by the millions, over 63 million since 1973 in the U.S. alone, all of a sudden killing seems to be a little bit more human, doesn't it? It's what people do. And it's not easy to look in the mirror, but we should, shouldn't really be that surprised when we see human beings treating other human beings as less than human beings, because that's what human beings do. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? What's going on in Israel is very human, but thank God for his common grace that restricts us from doing all that's in our sinful, evil hearts, Right? But we add to this, we have to add to this, that while what's going on in Israel is very human, it's also very sinful. What's going on is very sinful. Because God often does restrict men from doing what's in their evil hearts. God has graciously erected barriers to keep the evil hearts of men from running loose, just like Israel erected boundaries to keep evil men from coming through. God has erected security walls to keep the wickedness of the heart caged in. And what are those barriers? Number one, there's the barrier of conscience. The barrier of conscience. God has given us the conscience as a warning system that accuses us when we do what is wrong and excuses us when we do what is right. And even apart from knowledge of the law of God, humanity has a general sense of right and wrong. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 15 speak about that. The Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. So so, so God has given us a conscience that registers right and wrong in general. So it keeps us within some kind of boundaries. God has also given us the barrier of family. The, The structure of the home, and particularly the father in the home, is a barrier to evil. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 9, it says, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. That's a barrier that God has set up within the home. The father of the home is a barrier to lawlessness. That's why often when there is an absence of the father in the home, there's often a lack of respect and lawlessness prevails. Earthly fathers are God's instrument for the discipline of children. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will remove it far from him, right? God has given barriers even within the home. There's also the barrier of government. The God-given purpose of government is for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right. Governments are designed for the protection and flourishing of society. Romans 13.3 says, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. And then there's the barrier of the church. The church is the, the pillar and the ground of the truth. We uphold the truth for the watching world to see. You know, the conscience you know, of the world. Our members are to be... Salt and light in a dark and decaying culture. We have a particular responsibility for our members, uh, those members who come into the church. Paul says, do you not judge those who are within the church? There's actual judgment authority that's been given to the church for the members of the church. The leadership of the church is to hold its members responsible, to obey all that Christ has commanded us, even discipline those who walk in rebellion. But think about this. What do you think happens when the barrier of the church is replaced by a false religion. So you remove that barrier. Do you know what happened in the massacre on October 7th? Do you know what it was called by Hamas leaders? Do you know what it was called? Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. Al-Aqsa is the name of the mosque on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. The, the, The attack was carried out in the name of an Islamic place of worship. Can you imagine if an 
an attack was called Operation Grace Community Church, Operation 10th Presbyterian Church. They carried out this brutal attack in the name of a mosque and in the name of Allah. Allah Akbar, Allah is the greatest. One of the spokesmen for Hamas said that they have to make war with the Jews and the Christians. So the barrier of the church replaced by false religion. What do you think happens when the barrier of government is replaced by the encouragement of the government towards evil? 1988, the Hamas Covenant or Hamas Charter argues that destroying Israel and establishing an Islamic theocracy in Palestine is essential and eliminating Israel is encouraged by the government. What happens when the barrier of government is replaced and it's encouraged to eliminate a nation? What do you think happens when the barrier of family is replaced by a celebration of terrorists? There's actually streets and squares in Palestine that are named after terrorists and suicide bombers. And some of the most frightening and chilling videos that I saw was of children who were looking forward to the opportunity to join in the bloodshed. Children were being encouraged. They were excited about their opportunity to get their shot at it, looking for their chance. Why? Because that's what has been encouraged even within the homes. The families are encouraging this. And what do you think happens when the barrier of conscience is removed? It's misinformed. MacArthur says, we think of the world from a biblical frame of reference, and your conscience would be screaming at you if you did anything like this. But if the dominant ideology and highest form of morality says that your God is pleased by these atrocities, then that's what you do. Conscience is a mechanism that reacts to whatever set of convictions dominate your thinking. And the conscience, the family, the government, the community, the religion have all been thoroughly corrupted by sinfulness. So what's going on? What's going on is sinful. Number three, what's going on in Israel is very demonic. Very demonic. You need to understand that there is more going on behind the scenes when we're talking about an attack against Israel. There's more going on behind the scenes. There's there's much more going on. And obviously, in one sense, you could say that every act of terror is demonic, that unbelievers are held captive by Satan to do his will. But there's something that's particularly demonic about an attack on Israel with the intent to destroy every one of them. And why do I say that? Because if Satan can wipe out the Jewish people, then he wins. If God has made promises that must specifically be fulfilled with the Jewish people, and Satan is able to wipe out the Jewish people, then Satan has just defeated God. He's conquered God. And from as early as the book of Genesis, Satan, when he heard that there was a promised seed, he's been in war against the promises of God. Think about it. When Cain killed Abel in Genesis 4, what do you think Satan was attempting to do? We learn later in uh, 1 John that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. This is part of his plan to take out Abel. Why was he trying to take Abel out? He was trying to prevent the promises of God from happening. When Pharaoh commanded that the Hebrew male children should be put to death in Exodus 1, meaning that they could no longer procreate, wipe out all the male children, what do you think Satan was trying to do? He was trying to prevent the promises of God from happening. When the Amorites attacked Israel in the wilderness and would not let them pass, Numbers chapter 21, what do you think Satan was trying to do? He was trying to prevent the promises of God. When Antiochus Epiphanes went on a killing spree against the Jewish people in Daniel chapter 8, what do you think Satan was trying to do? Trying to prevent the promises of God. And every time there's been an attack on Israel with the intent of utterly destroying them, there is much more going on behind the scenes. And we all know about the Nazi Holocaust, six million Jewish souls claimed by the state-sponsored genocide. Hitler was trying to set up a thousand-year reign and eliminate the Jewish people. And you're going to tell me that's not demonic? It's demonic. And according to the book of Revelation, Satan will once again seek the complete annihilation of the Jewish people in the future. Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 and 14 It says, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, referring to Israel, 
But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent to get away from Satan, speaking about the protection and preservation of Israel. And you have to ask yourself, why does this tiny nation about the size of New Jersey, the smallest, uh, the fifth smallest state in the U.S., with the population of about 8 million people, which is less than the state of Virginia, receive so much hatred across the world. Why? Why are all the eyes on Israel? It's satanic. It's a satanic attack. Anti-Semitism is demonic. And when there are demonstrations all across the world, even in our own nation, supporting the annihilation of Israel, you have to understand that there's more going on behind the scenes. There's much more going on. I don't know if you've heard that slogan, you know, the placard and the slogan, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That's actually a call for the annihilation of Israel. From the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, meaning there's no room for Israel in between. They're talking about an elimination of Israel, the Jewish people. So don't, don't be naive. Don't be fooled. It's not political. It's satanic, okay? But Satan will not win. Satan will not win. I love this quote I, I, I picked up. Concerning the Jewish people, it's been said the king of Egypt could not destroy him. The waters of the Red Sea could not drown him. The gallows of Haman could not hang him. The great fish could not swallow him. The fiery furnace could not consume him. The great nations could not absorb him. And dictators like Hitler will not annihilate him. And neither will Hamas or the Antichrist. It's the nation that will not die. It will not die. Like I've mentioned before, Every time the world seeks to wipe out the Jewish people off the face of the earth, it just gives them another holiday. Because they're not going to die. <laughs> they're not going anywhere. I mean, that's the promise of God. The affliction of Egypt ended in Passover. The persecution under Antiochus ended in Hanukkah. The destruction of the Jewish people by Haman ended with the Feast of Purim. And even the German Holocaust eventually gave way to the Jewish independence a few years later. As we speak there of this conflict in Israel, I can tell you with the authority of God's word that Israel will not die. Now, I don't know what the future holds. I mean, they might go out of their land for a season, come back. I don't know what the future holds, but I can tell you this, they're not going to die and they're going to come back because God has plans for them in that land. So they're not going to die. What's going on in Israel? It's very demonic. It's human, it's sinful, it's demonic, and it's also very biblical very biblical. The, the Bible is clear that there will come a time when all the nations of the earth will turn against Israel. And uh, it's by no accident, I mean, just in the providence of God, that we've been walking through the prophecy of Daniel, and we've come across this already a number of times, haven't we? That, that the world is going to be centered on Israel, attacking Israel. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city of the sanctuary and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. There's an attack on Israel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. There's going to be an attack on Israel. Daniel 12, verse 7, and as soon as they finish scattering, shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. There's going to be an attack on Israel. And this is talking about national Israel during the time of the Great Tribulation. And the Great Tribulation is not what we're experiencing now. But I can tell you this, that the kind of animosity that we're hearing against the Jewish people is the same kind of animosity that we will hear about in the end times. Well, maybe some of you, I'm not going to be here for that, okay? <laughs> but it's the same kind of animosity that will be present in the end times. And I'll just mention this, and there's so much more than we'll have the time to cover, but flip over to the book of Ezekiel. This is, this is worth turning to. This is worth turning to. So if you flip behind Daniel, it's probably brown in your Bible by now. So wherever that brown line is in the middle of your Bible, just go one book before that. You'll be in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 38. And like I said, I'll just mention this, but... What we find in Ezekiel is that Ezekiel speaks about a coalition of nations that will rise up in the last days against Israel. A coalition of nations that will rise up in the last days against Israel. And this is mentioned all over the Bible, but, but this is fascinating the way that it's described here, the battle of this last day. Look at Ezekiel 38. Look at verse 10. 
Look at verse 10. It says, Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. And it's talking about this coalition of nations that un under a leader to attack Israel. You're going to devise an evil plan. You will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest, that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates, to capture spoil, to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center of the world. Does any of this sound familiar? Coming in without the walls, bars, gates, capturing people who are at rest that are living securely. I mean, this is the kind of attack that we just saw. And this is the kind of attack that we're going to see again like I said, I won't be here for it. But it's the kind of attack that's going to be there again in the future. It's the same kind of thing that's going to happen again. And the nations are going to join in on this attack against Israel. And look at who's going to join in on this attack. Look at uh, chapter 38 and verse 5. It says, Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them all of them with shield and helmet. Do you know what modern-day Persia is? Iran. Do you know who Hamas said helped them out with this attack? Iran. This is not a this is not political. <laughs> this, this is biblical. And this is not that battle. What we're seeing is not this battle that we're reading about in Ezekiel 38, but it is a precursor of a future day, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you gotta start thinking like something. Something should start connecting. Like what I'm reading about in the Bible is like I'm seeing like the same kinds of things happening in the world today. Like that's not by accident, okay? Not by accident. What's going on today is very biblical. And the Bible says that there's coming a time when the entire world will gather itself against Jerusalem and trample Jerusalem underfoot. Revelation 11 and verse 2 says they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Zechariah 12.3 says it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. Basically, the world's going to get tired of carrying Israel. I mean, they're just so heavy. They're wearing us down. I mean, why are we even dealing with these people anymore? It's going to become this heavy weight for people. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it, Zechariah 12.3 says. Zechariah 14.2 says, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured. The houses plundered. The women ravished, which is exactly what we saw. Half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. There will be a future full-scale attack against the nation of Israel. And at the tip of the spear will be the Antichrist who will pour out the hottest hell that he can against the people of God. And we've already read what will happen once those nations gather against Israel and I don't mind reminding you again, in Zechariah 14 and 3, it says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight. Against those nations is when he fights on a battle, on a day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. The Lord is going to put an end to the reign of terror forever. Praise God. I'm looking forward to that day. And I will be there for that day, okay? <laughs> I will be there for that day. October 7th is not that yet, but do you think that God might be putting all the pieces in place for what he has in the future? All the pieces of the board in place for the end of history. That's why I say what's happening in Israel is very biblical. And I'm not making any end-time predictions, okay? Don't worry. We don't set dates here, okay? Mark 13, 32 says, But of that day or hour nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone, when the, during his incarnation, not even the Son knew. And we would stand in contradiction to the Lord himself if we try to set any kind of dates. But Jesus did say in Matthew 16, 3, Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? In Romans 13 and verse 11, it says, It's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. 
Could it be another thousand years before Jesus returns? Maybe, but I don't think so. (laughs) I don't think so. Which leads me to my final point for today. What's going on in Israel is very alarming. What's going on in Israel is very alarming. And you would think that with all that's going on, you know, as the world is watching these things, that rational, sensible human beings would pick their heads up out the sand and say, you know what? Something doesn't seem to be right here. Like this, this, this guy trying to tell us something with all of these things coming into place. But you know what's going to happen? And this is what the Bible says is going to happen in the, the last day, even during the time of the tribulation. And you, you just imagine with all the destruction that's going to happen during the time of tribulation that people are still going to be clueless. Surprised? The vast majority of people will move on, go about business as usual. But that's not surprising because that's exactly what the Bible says they will do. And for a lot of people, it's like, you know, you get a couple weeks beyond the tragedy and they go right back to business as usual. You know, it's like makes the news for a couple days, everybody's locked in, and then it's just like, okay, you know, how much are the gas prices again? And what am I going to have for dinner? And all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's old news. Matthew 24, 37 says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, till the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. And so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And that's what we're reminded of in Matthew chapter 24. So all of that was introduction to get you to Matthew. So Matthew chapter 24, don't worry, I'll get you out soon, okay? Matthew 24. You would think that hell unleashed on the earth would be enough for people to wake up out of their sleep and slumber, but don't underestimate the hardness of the human heart. The hardness of the human heart. There will be people who won't budge, but Jesus will not wait until you're good and ready for him to appear. In Matthew 24, verses 42 down to chapter 25 and verse 13, we have three pictures of Christ's return that communicate that we need to be found watching, working, and being well prepared for when he comes. And in the context of a discussion about the second coming, look down at verse 42, Matthew 24 and verse 42. It says, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. We need to be found watching when Christ returns or Jesus will come like a thief. We need to be found watching for when Christ returns or Jesus will come like a thief. In this passage, uh, Jesus is compared to a thief in the night. And because of the illustration, it's somebody who comes unexpectedly. A thief doesn't schedule an appointment with you. You know, how does next Thursday, you know, around 7 o'clock look for you? Is that good for you? You know, can I pencil you in, you know, for that night? Like a thief is not letting you know when he's coming, right? His appearance is going to be sudden, unexpected, on his own time. And the picture that Jesus is painting for us here is that when he comes, it's going to be, he's going to catch people unaware, like a thief in the, night, in the night breaking in. And if you're the head of a house and you knew what time the thief was coming, you wouldn't turn over and go back to sleep. You'd be ready. You'd be watching. In the case of ancient Israelites, the thief would actually crawl through the, crawl through the walls, not just creep through the windows. They, they'd actually like burrow through the walls. The, the walls were made out of uh, mud bricks, and thieves would actually break through the walls into the house. Uh, broken into, the, the word that's used in verse 44 is diaruso, which means to dig through. And if you knew what hour the thief was digging through the, the walls of your house, you know, you'd be on the other side, you know, with something for him. <laughs> the Romans divided their hours into the, the periods of, of like these watches in the night, six to nine, nine to 12, 12 to three, and three to six, the four watches of the night. And if you knew which, which three-hour period the thief was coming in, you would be awake, wide awake during that three-hour period. But Jesus says, you don't know what the day is, the 24-hour period. You don't know what the watch is, the three-hour period. And you don't know the hour, 
the single period. You know, you know nothing. I'm not telling you when I'm coming. How do you get ready for an event when you have no idea when it will take place? You don't get ready, you stay ready, right? You don't have to get ready if you, you're staying ready. And this is what the, the, the point is. You need to just be ready. Just be ready. Don't, don't worry about like, is this it? Is that it? Like, is it going to happen? Just be ready. I don't know when it is. I don't have anything to tell you. I don't know when it's going to happen. People say, is this, is this a sign of the end times? I don't know. It could be. It could be happening today. <laughs> Are you ready today? If, if this was the time when Christ is going to kick off the end time events, like, are you ready now if it were to happen? So, so don't, don't worry about getting the calculators out and figuring out the time and the calendars and, you know, how many, how many years is a, um, uh, you know, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a span of life and, you know, maybe I can figure it out. Like, don't, don't worry about all that. Just be ready. It's sooner than it's ever been. That's all you need to know. It's sooner than it's ever been, and you just need to be ready. My friends in the military told me that the rooms could be inspected at any time, and the only way to prepare for a room inspection was to keep your room ready for the room inspection. You just had to keep it ready. Keep the bed made. Keep the shoes polished. Keep the uniform pressed. Just, just keep it ready because you don't know when the inspection will happen, and only believers are ready for the room inspection. Galatians 5 verse 5 says, For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. How are we ready for the hope of righteousness? It's through the Spirit by faith. By faith, because I've placed my trust in Jesus Christ, I am ready. I'm ready for whenever he comes. And only those who've placed their faith in Christ are ready. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4-5, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not sons of the night or of darkness. We're the sons of light. We've trusted in Christ. We're ready. Are you waiting for his return by faith? We need to be found watching when Christ returns or Jesus will come like a thief. Number two, we need to be found working when Christ returns or Jesus will come like a judge. Look at verse 45. Verse 45. It says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this next parable, Jesus describes himself as the master of the house who gives his servant responsibilities while he's away. And the faithfulness of the servant is an indication of whether or not that slave is genuine or a hypocrite. That's what it talks about here. Assigning him a place with the hypocrites. Who's genuine? Who's the hypocrite? There's no indication here that salvation is a result of good works but rather good deeds are a demonstration of the genuineness of your faith. Good deeds identify who's really part of the kingdom, who's, who's genuine, who's, who's not a hypocrite here. And the first slave that's examined here is the faithful and sensible slave. His master puts him in charge. He gives the servants the food at their proper time. And blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. The faithful slave is the one who demonstrates genuine love, for the people of God. And that's exactly what 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So, so what are the, the people of God found doing? They're found loving the brothers and the sisters of the faith. Like, that's just part of who we are that identifies us as believers. We love the people of God. And when he comes, that's what he finds us doing because that's a genuine believer. How do you know that you, can that you love a God who you can't see? It's by loving the brothers and sisters that you do see. It, it, it demonstrates a genuine love for God, which is exactly what he comes and finds them doing. He's taking care of the servants. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. 
Jesus expands this in Matthew 25 when he says, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. And the people are saying, hey, when, when did that happen? Jesus says, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. So love for the people of God is love for Christ. If you don't have a love for the people of God, don't tell me about your love for Jesus because it's hypocritical. It's hypocritical. So, so when Jesus comes, is he going to find a genuine believer or is he going to find a hypocrite? So this is what it's talking about. A faithful and sensible slave is characterized by love and kindness towards the people of God. And faithful service in this life results in glory in the next. And the wicked and worthless slave, what about him? Look at verse 48. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time. I think I've figured it out. I figured out the end times, and I, it's not going to come at least for another 20 years. I got some time down here. I got time. Instead of being found faithful, he squanders the time away, uses his authority not to help others but to hurt. He beats up his fellow slaves. This is an illustration of the sinful choices of the unbeliever. 1 John 1.6 says, If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This is somebody who's proven himself not to be genuine. He says, I know him, but he's a liar. The truth isn't in him. And the graphic picture is that he will be cut in pieces. When the Lord returns, he will be chopped up into bits. It's a graphic illustration. Spiritual reality is far worse than being cut up by Hamas because it's being cut up by the Lord and cast into the eternal flames. This is what it looks like not to be ready for the return of of Christ. We need to be found watching when Christ returns or he'll come like a thief. We need to be found working when Christ returns or Jesus will come like a judge. And finally, we need to be well prepared when Christ returns or he will come back like a stranger. Look at the last illustration in chapter 25. Look at verse 1. It says, then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in the flask with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. A wedding would have been the most important social event that you would have ever been invited to. And the ladies that were invited to the wedding, they were honored to be part of the bridal party. And it was customary during this time to have a, a wedding procession right through the middle of town. And it was to have the ceremony at night. So the bridegroom would come to the home where his bride was, pick up his bride and the bridesmaids, and they would walk through the town with their lanterns lit. It's customary to hold them at evening, and if you're part of the wedding party and you didn't have a light, guess what? Nobody sees you. Like having a light was part of being, like it's part of your preparation. It's like putting your, your wedding gown on or you know, your bridesmaid dress on. Like not having a light is not being prepared. You're not ready to be a part of what we're doing. It would be out of place. So each bridesmaid was equipped with a, a lamp. It would have been obvious that these lamps needed oil. But in our story, five of these bridesmaids prepared themselves with enough oil for the night, and five did not. And again, all these bridesmaids knew that the groom was coming. They knew it was coming. They just didn't know when. They didn't know when. And they go to sleep. There's nothing sinful here about the sleep. It just illustrates how long it was because the groom was going to come and announce himself. And here he comes when he announces himself. There's five who are ready and five who are foolish. Look at verse 6. It says, But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. At midnight, suddenly, unexpectedly, the groom shows up. The announcement's made. Come out to meet him. Procession has begun. There's this commotion. They're opening their eyes in excitement. And they only had one job. One job, one responsibility, light the lamp. <laughs> That's all they have to do, light the lamp. You're ready to go, light the lamp. Lamps were typically like a little clay bowl and they pour oil in it and a little wick, you know, cloth wick was placed in. You light it up and it, and it burns for the night. And the five foolish versions find out too late that they don't have any oil in their lamps. The bridesmaids weren't the guest of honor. The groom was. The bride was. They're there to be a part of it, part of the celebration. And the groom is not going to wait until the bridesmaids get ready. He's going to go on without you. 
Jesus is not waiting until you're good and ready for him to come. Jesus will go on without you. Look at verse 8, the confusion here. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you two. Go instead to the dealers, buy some for yourselves. While they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with them to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. It's midnight. Where, where are you going to find oil at midnight? What shops would have been open that late? So the foolish virgins frantically run in the dark to find oil while the procession has already moved on and the wedding feast has begun. And then the picture gets even more pathetic. Look at verse 11. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. The virgins show up late to the party. They might have given up their search for the oil and tried to come to the party anyway. Banging on the door, Lord, it's us. Open up for us. We, we don't want to miss the banquet. We know that we don't have the oil. We know that our lamps aren't lit, but can you let us in anyway? Lord, can you open up for us? And they cry out, Lord, Lord. Have we heard that before? Lord, Lord. Didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Didn't I do many wonderful things in your name? The Lord says, I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Depart from me. Depart from me, you work of iniquity. Apparently they can see the groom. They can see the party, but they can't get in. Just like the people of Noah's day who are banging on the door after the door has been shut and there's no entrance into the ark. But they were invited. They're part of the bridal party. And how many people are invited to come to Christ week in and week out? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Christ. Why don't you turn to Jesus now? Jesus is willing to forgive your sins. If you would repent of your sins, turn from your sins, trust in him. He'll forgive you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Today is the day of salvation. Don't turn away from the Lord in the day of salvation. It's, it's here. The opportunity is here. And how many people turn away from the message every week? And then when Jesus shows up, guess who's not ready? The same ones who had been invited. And that's what is so sad. There are so many people who are hearing the message. They're seeing the events in the world and they're totally ignoring it. They're acting as if like, I got time. Yeah, I see what's going on over in Israel, but I've got time. Yeah, I've heard that message last week. Yeah, that's the same one, Jesus. Yeah, he died for your sins. I've heard that already. I've got time. You don't know how much time you have. You have no idea when your time is up. And how many people will bang on the door of heaven only to be turned away? Lord, have mercy. Wake up. Today is the day of salvation. Wake up. Today, our salvation, the day of salvation is closer than when we first believed. He's right at the door. John the Baptist talked about the coming of Christ, he says, the axe is already at the root of the tree. You have no idea when your tree will be chopped down. The axe is right there. He doesn't have to do anything but to pick it up. Would you come to Christ? Would you turn to Christ? What's, what's the example that we see in what's going on in Israel? What, what, how, how should we respond to what we see going on in Israel? I've only got one message for you. Be ready. Be ready. That's the message. Because your time could come up and you don't know when it is. Turn to Jesus Christ and find life. Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, came to this world, lived the, the perfect life, the life that you couldn't live. He died on the cross as a substitute for the sins that you've committed for your treachery against the Lord because you are a sinner 
And Jesus Christ died in the place of sinners. Took upon himself the, the, the guilt, the penalty of sins. And suffered for sins completely on the cross. So that if you would just turn to Jesus that you could find life today. Your sins could be completely blotted out. Completely wiped out. Clean. And in its place, after he wipes it all clean, guess what he does? He places his righteousness in its place. And then you can stand before God completely righteous. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's the great exchange. That's the offer that's being made today. And how many of you will turn away and be unprepared in that day? What's the message from Israel? You need to be ready because you don't know when the time is up. Israel is a warning. One preacher said, if you want to know what the time is, look at Israel. <laughs> look at Israel. What's going on in Israel? It's very human. It's very sinful. It's very demonic. It's very biblical. And if you don't know Christ today, it should be very alarming. Very alarming. And we pray for the people of Israel. It's sorrowful what's happening there. We pray for the many people who are in danger of dying without knowing Jesus Christ. We pray that they would come to know the Lord. We pray for the, the people in Hamas, Palestine, who don't know Jesus Christ. Pray for them to turn to the Lord. But when we pray, we don't pray like those who don't have hope. Because Jesus, who is the Lord of the church, he's also the king of the Jews. And one day he will come back and he will save a remnant for himself that he will show his kindness to and bring into the eternal kingdom. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you, God, so much for this time that we've had in your word. And your word is so rich and powerful and applicable. It's relevant. What we're reading in the Bible is more relevant than tomorrow's paper. Father, we're so grateful for all that we've been given in your word, for our edification. Now, Father, that you would instruct us from these things. And Father, I pray that you would help those who are here who don't know Jesus Christ, that they would be ready because we don't know when the end times will come upon us. But Father, if we're ready, we don't have to get ready. And if we know Jesus Christ, we have all that we need. And even as we sung earlier, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold or all that the world can afford. Father, because if we have Jesus, we have eternal life. We have all that we need. And Father, we thank you for our Savior. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.